Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in a series of Bible studies that we've entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we're looking at the whole story of God's people Israel being slaves in Egypt, coming out of that bondage and their journey all the way into the promised land, Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. And the more I study this, and this is something I've been teaching and preaching for almost 40 years now, but the more I'm studying this, this time around, the more amazing the whole thing becomes, that God who is in charge of everything that happens, he knew that this history of his people, and I want to keep emphasizing, this is not a fairy tale, it really happened. All of these events that we're looking at, they're real historical events that took place. Nevertheless, beyond that history, God was revealing a far greater picture and a far greater journey, one which you and I are now on, our spiritual journey out of bondage into abundance. And it's nothing short of amazing when you realize every detail that happened with Israel from the time they were in Egypt all the way to the time they were crossing the River Jordan into the Promised Land Every detail speaks about some aspect of our spiritual journey. And Pastor David Slentz has been sharing a scripture with me from Psalm 119, where it speaks about the unfolding of God's Word. And it's like there are so many little folds in God's Word that God unfolds one, and there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one, and there's just no end to the depth of God's Word. And each time we continue a little further along in this study, I'm just amazed at how each detail speaks to some aspect of your life and my life. And this is not just a Bible study to learn the history of Israel, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, and I think we've been seeing this right along, every step in Israel's journey, it speaks about an experience that you and I have through Jesus Christ, starting with the blood of the Passover in Egypt that released the Israelites from slavery which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, the only way to get freed from the bondage of sin. And so, we've now come to Mount Sinai. And without a whole lot of review, I want to jump right in here tonight, because we've come to a very fascinating part of the story. After coming out of Egypt, we saw Israel pass through the Red Sea, and then they came to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai represents for us the experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
And we're going through a list of seven key things that took place for the Israelites when they came to Mount Sinai. And this was not a brief stop. It was a one-year stop that the Israelites had at Mount Sinai before they continued any further in their journey. So during that year, a number of significant things took place. And let's recap them quickly. Number one, it was at Mount Sinai that God revealed his law through Moses. He went up into the mountain and came down with the two tablets of the law engraved on stone. And that's where God made a covenant with Israel. Secondly, at Mount Sinai, God brought his people, Israel, into an intimate relationship with himself that is compared to marriage. We saw that the scriptures say there at Mount Sinai, God became a husband to them. Likewise, for you and me, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, God brings us into an intimate relationship with himself where he actually begins to reveal to us that he's called us to be the bride of Christ. We are espoused in marriage to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Thirdly, it was at Mount Sinai that God said, let them make a sanctuary for me. God was seeking for a dwelling place, a temple. And in this case, it was a portable temple. It was a gigantic tent that they could set up and then take down and carry it to the next place where they were to stop in their journey. That tabernacle that they had with them for 40 years in the wilderness, we saw it represents, again, an experience that you and I have through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, where each one of us becomes a temple, a dwelling place for God, and more importantly, corporately, we become one body, the temple where God desires to dwell, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. Last time, we saw the fourth key thing that took place at Mount Sinai. That's where God revealed his glory to the people. They could visibly see the glory of God covering the mountain. The glory of God came and filled the tabernacle. And from that time on, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night visible over the tabernacle, representing the glory and the presence of God. Then, for those of us in the New Testament, when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the glory of God. And God begins to lead us and guide us by that Holy Spirit, by the glory and presence of God. Now, tonight, we've come to the fifth of seven very important experiences that the Israelites had at Mount Sinai, and of course we'll talk about what this represents for you and for me as followers of Christ. 
at Mount Sinai, God organized all of these, what are estimated to be about two and a half million slaves. We're told there were 600,000 men that came out of Egypt. So it's normally calculated, if you add women and children, maybe about two and a half million, give or take some. But we have a large number of slaves. They All they had known for 400 years in Egypt was slavery. Now, God takes that mass of slaves that he's delivered through the blood of the Lamb and through his mighty power, he now actually counts them. They do a census of all of the people that have come out of Egypt, but more importantly, he begins to order them. He places them in ranks and in a marching order, and when they leave Mount Sinai, they're not two and a half million slaves. They leave as a mighty army, a highly organized army that God has united and placed together in a specific way. This is extremely important for us to capture and to visualize. God numbered each one of them. He ordered them by tribes and by families. And an entire chapter is devoted to explaining the specifics of this ordering and this marching order or this ranking of the Israelites. And it's found in the book of Numbers. And that, of course, is where the book gets its, its name. This is where the people were numbered. They were told to do a census of all of the Israelites and to organize them by tribes and by families. And we're going to look at Numbers chapter 2. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to look at a large portion of this chapter so that you can get a little bit more of a deeper understanding of how detailed and how specific God was about how he wanted everyone in a particular place, in a specific arrangement. And the reason I'm spending a lot of time with this is the New Testament counterpart to this is very clear and it's very powerful. We're not just a bunch of people that God has gathered, gathered together. He's numbered us. He knows each one of us. He's arranged us in a very specific way. He has a specific plan and a specific marching order, if you will, for us. All right, let's look at this in Numbers chapter 2, beginning from verse 1. And once again, if you are new with us tonight, the notes and the recordings for all of these studies are available at our website. That's new-life-ministries.org. And you can download all of the outlines, the notes for these studies, as well as the recordings from each session.
If you are following along in the outline, we've come now to part four. And again, this is Out of Bondage into Abundance, part four, and we're on page 49. We've come to Roman numeral number five, which is entitled, God Organized and United His People into One Body. Now, reading from Numbers 2, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it. Now notice, by this time, the tabernacle has been completed. It's called the tent of meeting here. But this took nearly a year for the tabernacle to be completed. So, now that the tabernacle is completed, God's glory has filled that temple, the next step is to organize, number, and arrange the people so that they're ready to begin marching as a mighty army. So, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. Now let me explain this a little bit. Each of the twelve tribes carried a, a specific standard for the tribe of Levi or Judah or Simeon. Each one had their own standard. And then within a tribe there were banners for each family within that tribe. Verse 3, On the east, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon. Now just, let's pause here. I want to move through this slowly. Now God's telling them, on which side of the tabernacle they are to camp. If you were a part of the tribe of Judah, you didn't go to the west side. Maybe you had some friends over there. That's fine. Too bad. Everyone from Judah is to be on the east side, under their standard. And they didn't pick their leader. God did. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon. Okay? So, I want you to notice clearly, step by step here, God is the one who's calling the shots. He's arranging the people, literally tribe by tribe, family by family, individual by individual, down to God is the one picking out the leaders for each one of the tribes. Okay, on to the next tribe. In verse 5, the tribe of Issachar will camp next to them. Verse 7, the tribe of Zebulun will be next. Verse 9, all the men assigned to the camp of Judah according to their divisions, number 186,400. As I mentioned, 
This is very detailed, very specific. They actually did a complete census. They counted all of the people. So, 186,400 in Judah. They will set out first. Notice, here again, God is going to determine their marching order. He wants Judah to be the first in the marching order. Drop down to verse 10. On the south will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. Uh, Verse 12. The tribe of Simeon will be next to them. Verse 14, the tribe of Gad will be next. Verse 16, all the men assigned to the camp of Reuben, according to their divisions, number 151,450. They will set out second. Now I'm skipping over some stuff, but I'm including enough for you to get a, a feeling for how detailed this whole arrangement is. On to verse 17. Then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in their own place under their standard. That's extremely important. And I want you to remember these words because we're going to read a passage in a minute from the New Testament that sounds almost identical. It's amazing. They will set out in the same order as they encamp, each in their own place. Underline that word, place. Each in their own place. God has a specific place for every single Israelite. They didn't choose their place. They didn't pick which side of the tabernacle they liked. They weren't calling the shots. God was. God placed each tribe, each family, each individual in a specific place, and that was to be their marching order. All right, let's go a little further here. Verse 18, On the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim, under their standard. Verse 20, The tribe of Manasseh will be next to them. Verse 22, The tribe of Benjamin will be next. Verse 24, All the men assigned to the camp of Ephraim According to their divisions, number 108,100, they will set out third. Verse 25, on the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan under their standard. Verse 27, the tribe of Asher will camp next to them. Verse 29, the tribe of Naphtali will be next. Verse 31, all the men assigned to the camp of Dan, number 157,600, they will 
set out last. Somebody had to be last. God determined who was first, who was second, who was third, and who was last. Verse 32. These are the Israelites counted according to their families. All the men in the camps, now ladies don't get upset, but in those days, the only ones who were being counted here were the men. All the numbers we've read were just the men. And we'll see that now in the next part of verse 32. These are the Israelites counted according to their families, all the men in the camps, by their divisions, number 603,550. Verse 33. The Levites, however, were not counted along with the other Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. That's another whole story which we won't get into right now. Verse 34. So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each of them with their own clan and family. Now, if you've ever worked even with a fairly small group of people, you'll know how difficult it is to get everybody organized. Um, I'm a teacher. I know how difficult it is to get ten students lined up in order. I've marveled sometimes when we even try to do a group photograph in the church of 15 or 20 people. It seems to take half an hour to get everybody in their place. This was a monumental task of organizing two and a half million slaves and not just numbering them and organizing them, but getting them ready to start marching like soldiers in an army. And that is indeed what's happening here, as we'll see in a minute. They were being organized as an army. You may have noticed repeatedly in the scriptures we just read, uh, in the NIV, it uses the word divisions. On the east toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah, the divisions of Reuben, etc. If you have King James, you'll notice it doesn't say divisions, but it says actually more in line with the original Hebrew word, the armies. And that word that is used repeatedly there, translated divisions in the NIV, but translated armies in the King James, and I believe also in the New American Standard, it comes from a Hebrew word, saba, which means a mass of persons especially organized for war, an army, by implication, an army, a battle, company, host, service, soldiers, or warfare. So very clearly, this word has a definite meaning. It's talking about warfare. It's talking about people organized 
specifically for battle, or as I think the King James translates it correctly, as armies. We're not now looking at a whole bunch of slaves, everybody doing his own thing, saying, hey, I think I'll camp over here. No, I'm going to go first, you go second. Uh, put him at the end of the line. Everyone has been arranged in a very specific way, just as a general would want all of his soldiers arranged in a specific marching order. So now, one very important thing is accomplished at Mount Sinai. The people are organized by rank, by tribe, by family, into one single army. And we're getting a little bit ahead of our story, but at some point in time, these Israelites are going to have to do battle. They're going to have to fight enemy nations. And ultimately, when they go into the Promised Land, they've already been told about this, there are seven nations in Canaan that are stronger and more powerful than they are that all have to be defeated and driven out. So this is no game. They realize they're getting ready for warfare now. Now, let's look at the New Testament implications of this. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I was just so happy to know that my sins were forgiven. I was overjoyed the night that God filled me with the Holy Spirit, and I felt good, I felt happy, I felt light, and it was like, wow, I'm always going to feel like this? What's not to like about being a Christian? Well, what I didn't realize was when God baptized me in the Holy Spirit, he enlisted me as a soldier into his army. And it wasn't too long after that that I began to realize I was in the middle of a war, a raging war. And I better now find my place in the army, put on the whole armor of God, and start marching like a soldier. Because like it or not, when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, God transports us into a whole different realm that we'll be looking at a little more closely uh, later tonight in Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about us being soldiers of Christ, putting on the whole armor of God. Well, he also describes a little bit about the war and the battlefield. The battlefield isn't in this world. The battlefield is in heavenly places. The battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not with people. It's against powers, principalities, dark and evil forces in heavenly places. We didn't know about any of that stuff until we got saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we realize we are in a war. Now, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, each believer we saw becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And corporately, 
all of those believers are joined together to become one temple, one holy habitation for God. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the bride of Christ. Well, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, when each believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, he is baptized or placed into the body of Christ, where he is mysteriously joined with all the other Spirit-filled saints by that same Holy Spirit. And each believer then becomes a unique member of the body of Christ. And this is not our choosing. Remember, the Israelites didn't choose what tribe they were in, what family they were in, what order they marched in. God is the one that dictated all of those things. Likewise, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we are sovereignly and supernaturally placed into the body of Christ with a distinct office, a distinct calling, and a distinct function to fulfill. And we'll see in just a moment, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he actually speaks about eyes, ears, hands, and feet. These are different members in the body of Christ, speaking of different functions, different gifts, different callings, different ministries. And I want to make this very, very clear. We don't pick and choose. This is chosen for us. Just as it was chosen for the Israelites at Mount Sinai, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, God ordains each one of us to a particular office, ministry, place, and function within the body of Christ. And according to that calling, God equips each member with the gifts he or she will need to fulfill that calling and that function. Let's read um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're probably familiar with that chapter. It speaks about the body of Christ. And we want to pick out some key things here that will tie us back to Numbers chapter 2, where God ordered, arranged the Israelites at Mount Sinai. You'll find almost the same language here when Paul is talking about Christians and their place in the church, in the body of Christ. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, we'll take it from verse 7 down to verse 13, and then we're going to read further a little after that, but let's look at 7 to 13 for now. Now, to each one, I like that, each one. Everybody's going to be involved in this. This is not for a select few. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given 
for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. You probably recognize these as what we normally refer to as the gifts of the Holy Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, underline in red ink. All these, all these gifts, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, what we just read, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them, He distributes them, to each one, just as he determines. Wow. This is so important for us to grasp this. I've heard so many wrong things taught just about what we read here. And it's so simple. It does not say... Here's a list of ingredients. You pick which ones you like, and you call them your own. It does not say, fast and pray and pick which spiritual gift you want. That's not biblical. It's not what Paul says here. In line with the Old Testament shadow of what happened at Mount Sinai, God is the one who's arranging this body. God is the one who's selecting specific members to fulfill specific functions. And God is distributing these grace gifts as He determines according to each member's calling and function. Let me read verse 11 again. All these, meaning the gifts, are the work of the one and the same Spirit. So whether somebody has the gift of prophecy or a gift of healing, the gift came from the same Holy Spirit. They're all the work of the same Spirit, and He, referring to the Spirit, He distributes them to each one, just as he determines. He determines. Verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. Underline that one. One 
body. Not two bodies, not 12 bodies, not 150,000 bodies, one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, doesn't say a Jewish church and a Gentile church. God even took on this great challenge of uniting Jews and Gentiles who had been separate for centuries, uniting them together now to be part of this one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now let's pause and take a breath here. The verses we just read from 7 to 13, there is no hint in any of these verses about you and me picking or choosing anything. God did it all for us. He baptized us in the Holy Spirit. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, He baptized us into the body of Christ. And then He distributed these gifts of the Spirit to each member as he determined. God is the one who's organizing and arranging this thing we call the church, the body. And I think most of us listening tonight, we can relate to this because we have a body. That body has many, many different members. Some of them are visible, a lot of them are invisible, but you've probably learned about them somewhere along the line in a science class. We have fingers, we have toes, we have arms, we have legs, we have eyes, ears, a mouth, we have a tongue, we have a stomach, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a heart, we have all kinds of internal organs that aren't even visible, but every one of them is different. Your finger doesn't look anything like your eyeball. Nevertheless, they're not separate. They're all joined into one unit that makes you, you. You're just one body. And God help us if any of us ends up with more than one body. That's not good. We want one body. And God uses this metaphor, and he gave the Apostle Paul this tremendous revelation of how the human body is actually a picture of the church, the body of Christ, with many, many different members, but all joined by God to create one unit. Now, let's read on from verse 14 to 18 some extremely important things about the members that make up this body. 1 Corinthians 12, continuing right along now from verse 14. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand... I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. Now let's pause here for a minute. Paul is going to mention just a few 
of the members that we're quite familiar with in the human body. But he's obviously speaking about a spiritual truth here. Just as your foot was created to perform specific functions that your hand cannot and should not be performing, so the hand was created to perform functions that the foot was not created to perform. They're different. They look different, and they're formed differently because they have a different purpose. They have a different function. And one of the problems that often happens in the church is if we don't have the function that we see somebody else having, we feel inferior, or worse than that, we feel like I don't belong to the body. So, he's not talking about physical feet and hands here. He's talking about spiritual members in the body of Christ. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Now, let me try to help bring this down to a level where we can all understand it. Let's just suppose the foot represents a healing evangelist. I'm not saying it does, but let's just assume a foot represents a healing evangelist. And this person, when he lays hands on the sick, when she lays hands on the sick, they're instantly healed. Let's suppose the hand is someone who serves. They drive cars, they set up tables, they prepare food, they serve others in the church. They're a hand. Well, the foot shouldn't look at the hand and say, well, I'm not doing what he's doing. I must not be a Christian. I must not belong here. I must not belong to the body. What, what Paul's talking about here is very real, and this happens very regularly with Christians. We start to compare ourselves with others, and because I don't have the ministry that X, Y, or Z has, I feel inferior, and I can even start to feel like I don't belong. Let me read this again. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. <clears throat> Notice again, the eye looks very different from the ear. They're both extremely important, very useful to you and to me. They don't look anything alike, and their function and their purpose is totally different. How silly it would be for an ear to compare itself with an eye. Ears are meant to hear, eyes are meant to see. 
and they're not at all alike. But here they are comparing themselves with each other and saying, because I'm not like that guy, I don't belong to the body. But Paul keeps affirming it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Notice now he's talking about the function. We need the function of both. We need the function of seeing. We also need the function of hearing. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And here comes the clincher. Underline this, I've put it in big, black, bold letters in the outline. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Wow, that sounds just like Numbers chapter 2. God placed everybody exactly where he wanted them to be. Let me read it again. In fact, God has placed, God has placed, pardon me for being redundant, but uh, this is something that Christians need to hear because there's a lot of confusion in churches that arises from a faulty understanding of this principle. I didn't place myself. You didn't pick or choose your place. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. doesn't say where you wanted to be, or where I wanted to be, or what I wanted to be. I didn't put in a request and say, God, I want to be an eye, or I want to be a mouth, or I want to be a hand, or I want to be a foot. God chose, selected, and ordained all of that for us. God has placed the parts in the body, and notice how it keeps repeating this, Every one of them. No one is left out. Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Bottom line, this is all about God's will. It's not about what you want, what I want. It's about what God has pre-planned and foreordained for every Christian and, more importantly, for his body, the church. Imagine the confusion they would have had in the desert of Sinai if two and a half million slaves took the mindset that's very popular in Christian churches today, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to choose who I am and what I want to be, and I'm even going to pick what church I go to. And don't even get me going on that one. I, I get tired when I hear people talking about how they're shopping for a church. 
What foolishness. We're not shopping for a church. Surrender your life to God and let God place you where you're supposed to be. We don't go through the yellow pages and say, Ah, New Life Ministries. I think I like that one. I think I'll join that one. That's my preference. That's foolishness. You better pray and ask God, God, where do I belong? Place me where I'm supposed to be. And it gets even worse. We have people who think they're pastors and they're not. They were never called to be a pastor, so they're not equipped to be a pastor, and they don't know the first thing about being a pastor. And they end up being a CEO or a businessman. We need to find out what our calling is. Peter says, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. What has God called us to be? If we're called to be an I, I guarantee you, God is going to give us visions. If we're called to be a mouth, I guarantee you, God's going to give us a voice, and He's going to give us things to say. But if we're trying to be something <clears throat> that He didn't call us to be, we're not going to be properly equipped. Notice, in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul starts off talking about the equipment. Those are the gifts. Grace gifts. Well, the equipment is given according to your placement, according to your calling, according to your function. If God called you from the foundation of the world to be an ear, then he's going to make your sense of hearing extremely sensitive. You're going to be listening to the voice of God. You're going to hear specific words, instructions, revelations, coming from the throne of God. Now, let me summarize all of this and go to verse 28 now in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and here Paul talks about specific ministry offices. And we're going to go a little further with this in a moment in Ephesians you'll see a lot of the same ministries mentioned there. Verse 28, And God has placed in the church. Huh. There it is again. God has placed in the church. First of all, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. And he goes on to ask a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? The answer is obvious. No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Well, who picks and chooses the apostles? God does. 
God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, prophets, teachers, etc. Just as we saw in Numbers chapter 2, from tribe down to family, and ultimately right down to the individual, God had this thing all mapped out for them. Their marching order, which side of the tabernacle they set their camp up on, and as you study further along in the Old Testament, he even defined specific functions for different tribes. This wasn't something that they took upon themselves. God ordained these things. And this is so important if the church is ever going to arise and be what God wants it to be. So often I hear people talking like, well, I'm going to pick and choose what I want to do and what I want to be and where I'm going to go. We end up with confusion. God has placed in the church every member. And if you study that word, and some translations will indicate this, it uses the word ordain. And I'm sorry to say, that word ordain is often misused by Christians. Oh, so-and-so is going to be ordained as a pastor today. Well, I hope he really is a pastor, because he is, if he isn't, it doesn't matter how many ordination ceremonies we have, he'll never function as a pastor. The word ordain literally means to set in place. And that's why this is really the best translation. God has placed them. It means God sets something, he establishes something in a specific place. So, if you're ordained to be an apostle, man, you're going to be an apostle. Because God's the one that made up his mind on that one. And if he's ordained you to be an apostle, he's going to give you the gifts to fulfill that office of an apostle. If he didn't call you to be an apostle and you try to be one, you're going to make a huge mess. If God called you to be an evangelist, he's going to gift you, he's going to equip you, and this isn't a biblical term, but I think you can relate to it, he's already wired you to be an evangelist. You think like an evangelist, you pray like an evangelist, you talk like an evangelist, you eat, sleep, drink, and breathe evangelism, because that's what you're ordained to be. If you're called and ordained to be a teacher, you think like a teacher, you talk like a teacher, you can't help it, you're a teacher. That's what God ordained you to be. And he will gift you to fulfill that office. And over the years, I've seen both in my own life and in the lives of others, some rather humorous examples of what happens when we try to break away from God's ordination. I'll use a personal example, and hopefully it'll humble me a little bit. Early on in my Christian life, I saw several powerful ministers 
who were evangelists and prophets. And man, that really excited me. I, I wanted to be an evangelist. I wanted to get up and see thousands come to the altar getting saved and healed and demons coming out of them. And I wanted to be a prophet. I wanted to be able to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and, and tell everybody their fortunes and their business and predict the future and all that. Well, guess what? God didn't call me to be an evangelist. He didn't call me to be a prophet. And every time I tried to be one, I made a fool of myself. And, you know, God in his gentle, sweet mercy, he'll let you make a fool out of yourself just to learn that's not what he placed you in the body to be. I mean, just imagine your eye right now straining to hear my voice. How foolish. I don't care how hard your eye strains, it's not going to hear my voice. It wasn't designed for hearing. It was designed for vision. And as each one of us surrenders to God and allows the great potter to mold the clay and to place us where he's ordained us in the body, we're going to find the gifts, the grace, and all of the equipment flows for us to excel in that particular ministry or place or office. In Acts chapter 2, after the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we've already looked at these verses, and we're not going to read them again tonight, but as soon as they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were united together. The Bible says they were united in one accord. They shared everything in common. And they were united like a mighty army. And as you read in the subsequent chapters of the book of Acts, they began to march through the land like a mighty army, turning the world upside down for Christ. And it's a beautiful fulfillment of the type and shadow of Israel at Mount Sinai. God now had to organize them as an army so that they could march in rank and be ready for battle if and when that occurred. Now, let's look a little deeper at some of these specific ministries that God has established, specific functions that he's ordained within the body, and see how all of this is to bring the body together as one unit, one body. Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> we're not going to read them now, but in verses 3 to 5, Paul says, make every effort, strive for the unity of the Spirit. And he talks about one body, one faith, one baptism, one, one, one. It's one unit. But ju jumping down to verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11. So Christ himself 
gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Five ministry offices are mentioned here. We're not going to study them in this particular study. Uh, we could do that at another time. But five specific ministry offices. What does it say? Christ gave them. doesn't say they chose the office. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up <clears throat> until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, let's put all this together now. When a Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit, he is instantly, supernaturally, mysteriously baptized or placed into the body of Christ. It automatically happens. We become a member of the body of Christ. He places us, each one, in a specific location. I think that refers to geography as well as spiritual function. We had nothing to do with choosing any of that. He placed us where we are for his purposes. These ministries, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, these are specific offices, specific functions, each one requiring a special set of gifts. Those gifts are distributed by the Holy Spirit, and I'm quoting again from 1 Corinthians 12, just as He determines. He determines what gifts you need based on your calling, based on your placement, based on your function. I don't mean to sound critical, but I go bananas when I hear preachers on the radio or the TV talking about fast and pray and tell God what gift you want. That is false teaching. That is nowhere in the Bible. It doesn't say fast and pray and you tell God what ministry you want. You tell God what gifts you want. Fast and pray. 
absolutely. But fast and pray, humble yourself, surrender yourself to God, and ask God, what is your will for my life? What is your calling for my life? What do you want me to do? If you're an apostle, God will let you know that. And he will certainly equip you for that office. If you're a prophet, God will equip you to be a prophet. And everyone around you will recognize that you are a prophet. You won't have to wear a big badge or a big button say, I'm the official prophet of New Life Church. Your gift, your gifting, the anointing that comes with your calling, everyone around you will recognize that. Now, let me pick out a couple more things from this passage we just read in Ephesians 4. Christ gives these different ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to the church to equip the other people in the church for their works of service, for their ministry. This is all to bring the body together as one, one unit in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And we grow up not to become 10 or 20 or 100 bodies. We grow up to become one whole body, joined and held together. And I'm going to be honest with you tonight. This is the theory of it. In actual practice, most of the time, I don't see this happening. I see divisions, I see a Chinese church on one corner, a Spanish church on the other, and a different Spanish church on the other corner, the black church on this corner, and the white church down the road. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about one body. Now, there may be geographical separations that can't be bridged, but... For 40 years, I have had this vision, and I will not part with it, that through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, all national differences, skin color differences, language barriers, geographical barriers, all those things are torn down and dissolved, and we become one in Jesus Christ. And it has been my great pleasure to visit, I don't know, I lost count, maybe about 20 nations since I got saved. It's been my great pleasure to go to many countries where I don't even speak the language, I don't know what the people are talking about, I don't understand half their customs, but when I meet a spirit-baptized brother or sister, I immediately feel joined to them. It's supernatural. It has nothing to do with nationality, oh boy, I found an American over here in India. has nothing to do with nationality. It's spiritual. And God somehow, in spite of us, in these last days, He's going to bring together one holy bride, one 
holy nation. And if you and I want to be a part of it, we better start shedding these national, racial, color differences that divide us and allow the Holy Spirit to do His work of bringing us into the unity of the faith and to grow up and become mature in Him one whole body joined and held together. Now, I've gone a little bit over here, but I want to finish with one more little portion of Scripture, and that's going to do it for tonight. Children of Israel were organized into a mighty army at Mount Sinai, representing what the Holy Spirit begins to undertake when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's uniting us together, not just to become the body of Christ, but he's uniting us together to become one mighty army. Armies only do one thing. They fight battles. And brothers and sisters, we are in a war. And Paul describes that war a little further along in the same book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses that are familiar to us, but hopefully you can tie all this together tonight. From Numbers chapter 2 to 1 Corinthians 12 to the book of Ephesians, it's really all one and the same picture. God uniting his people together to become a mighty army. All right, Ephesians 6 from verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, by the way, it has come. <laughs> it has come. We're in it now. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Hundreds of Christians are being beheaded, slaughtered, even as we're doing this Bible study. Christians are dying around the world. This is an evil day, my friends. Put on the whole armor of God. When the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Sounds like a soldier to me. And last but not least, here it is. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Just as you prayed on the day of Pentecost, when God filled you with the Holy Spirit, and you spoke in other tongues, Paul says, after you put on all this equipment, get filled with the Holy Spirit. He's assuming he's talking to Spirit-baptized Christians. Those who do not yet have the baptism in the Holy Spirit, I don't think they'll be able to understand fully this experience. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Learn how to pray in the Spirit. 
on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Because the kind of battle we're in, it's not against flesh and blood. We can't fight it with our own human wisdom or cleverness. It can be fought only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer tonight, and let's understand why God gave us the Holy Spirit. It's not just to have a little gift and to speak in tongues every once in a while. This is a a major step in Israel's progress, and it's a major step in our spiritual journey. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, He unites us as one body and equips us to be a mighty army. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the promise that was given, that we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. It's the gift and it's the promise of the Father. Lord, I pray for everyone that is participating in this Bible study. Baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fill us with your power. Unite us together as one body, as one mighty army to stand against all the forces of darkness and evil and wickedness in the world today and to grow up in Jesus, becoming mature in him, Lord, filled with all the gifts, all the grace, all of the equipment that you've made available for each and every one of us to fulfill our purpose, our function, and our calling. Lord, bless each and every one tonight. Keep us as the apple of your eye. Keep us filled with the Spirit, walking and living in the Spirit until that blessed day when Jesus comes for his bride. Until then, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.